A little introduction. Now, due to uh, some scheduling snafu and some last-minute drop-ins and add-ons, my colleague Jeff Barrows uh, does a lot of work on human trafficking within the United States, and he's giving a talk at, at this exact time, and it's going to be about he's dealing with protocols and and a response. Like if you identify a victim, particularly in the United States, you know, what is what does our response look like and how you develop a protocol and how you develop, how you do your homework, what kinds of things you need to uh, have to learn about, the people you need to know, those kinds of things. Um, this talk is about more of an overview, issues of public health. So all of these talks are recorded. So if you want to go and see him live and get mine recorded or stay here and get his recorded, his will be excellent. We try not to double up uh, this, the same talks on the same topic, but it just happened to, this is how it had to happen this evening. So thank you for coming, um, and I, hope, I do hope that you get Jeff's talk um, and get his information because this is, that is his primary job, is basically equipping uh, healthcare professionals in the United States to address uh, human trafficking. So it's great, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, I am Catherine Welch, and we'll get through a little of these uh, preliminary, perfunctory issues of disclosure statements. Oh, this is, I didn't change that, but it's still good. I have no uh, financial relationships to disclose, and some of our learning objectives. Uh, is just to help you understand that there are different ways of approaching human trafficking. And the way that the United States government is approaching it is very heavily law enforcement. And you'll see lots of talk about capturing um, and prosecuting the perpetrators and rescue and aftercare. But I'm going to be discussing more about using our skills as healthcare professionals, how we're trained, and our approach to public health, seeing human trafficking as a public health problem and using a public health approach to address trafficking from prevention all the way through aftercare. And so a little bit about me. I am a pediatrician by training. I have been living in Asia for over 13 years now. have spent most of my time between Thailand and China. And currently I live in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I'm based. And I serve as a global consultant to organizations in building their capacity in developing a more robust health component to their counter-trafficking uh, interventions, such as anywhere from prevention, uh, looking at risk factors that might involve health or health care, uh, doing what I call red light clinics as a way to supplement their outreach uh, interventions. And I also do a lot with aftercare, aftercare shelters or community-based aftercare. And so as a consultant, someone working alongside organizations, sometimes that happens at a national level, sometimes is at a very local level, working with organizations that are reaching out to boys, transgenders, uh, men who are trafficked for labor or women who we identify in, in, this, in the flesh trade, what have you. And so I've been anywhere from the United States, Eastern Europe, and all over Asia. So that's a little bit about me. But I'd like to just start by engaging you 
uh, to understand, like, what, when you think of human trafficking, what, what, comes, to, what comes to mind? Just raise your hand or, or shout out. What, what, you know, when you, when you hear something on the news or when you hear someone talk about human trafficking, what do you think of? Exploitation. Uh, modern, slavery. modern slavery, right? Darkness. Uh, darkness. Okay. Disbelief. Uh, disbelief. Okay. Very good. Lack of power. Lack of power. Yes. Very essential. And so I'm going to go over a little bit, just a very brief overview into human trafficking before I get into really what I want to talk about. But just, and I'm going to go over this very. Very quickly, because Jeff Barrows on Saturday morning is giving another talk on more human trafficking 101. Basically, what is it and more the, more the um, basic um, issues about human trafficking. This is, I didn't make the schedule. So this is like human trafficking 201 or 220 or something like that. So his more trafficking 101 talk is on Saturday. So if this seems like I'm going too fast, well, it is, because I really want to have more time for the meat of this talk. Um, but as you said, you know, trafficking, you know, I heard exploitation. And just to give you an overview that, you know, trafficking is a legal definition. And there's a lot of countries, uh, including our country, has a definition that defines human trafficking. And there's three key components to that. And it's involving movement or confinement. Uh, you don't have to cross a border. Uh, people are trafficked within the town in which they grew up. But they are, you are confined. And you remove personal agency, which means you, you do not have control over your own destiny, your papers, your work, or schedule, or where you live, or who you talk to. Um, so it, there's a lot. Oh, I'm going to trip on that. Okay. So removing so that you're not in control of your own life. And it's for the financial profit or other gain of someone else, not you. And so it's, it happens everywhere. But, you know, when I heard exploitation, you know, that's good. Exploitation, trafficking is within the definition of exploitation. So let me, let me define this for you. For example, you might have a high-level call girl or someone who's prostituted, someone who prostitutes herself, okay? She may not be technically trafficked. Because she's still, she can be in charge. Many, many people who are prostituted are trafficked. They're pimped, okay? They're not in control. But some women, not very many, may or may not have some ability to control their clients or who they see. But they are still exploited. They're still at risk for murder every night. They're at risk for getting beaten up. And they are still exploited by their clients for people. So that's just one example. Or workers. Uh, Migrant workers who are not technically enslaved uh, but are still being exploited because they know that if they don't want to work in, at that job, they can find five other people who will put up with those kinds of conditions. And so that's just to – and I'm all for helping. And I'm, and I'm not saying I limit my services to people just addressing trafficking. Um, but it's important for you to recognize that many, even though the United Nations has a law and a definition of human trafficking, that there are a lot of countries that have other laws that define human trafficking according to their own parameters. And usually they make those laws so that it limits their, uh, they're limited in what they're obligated to do. 
for victims of human trafficking or to pursue uh, the perpetrators of human trafficking. You follow me? Like you make the law very narrow. For example, until 2008, Thailand did not include men as being legally, they were not able to be labeled as a victim of trafficking until 2008. So they didn't have to deal with all the men being trafficked in Thailand. So uh, just something broad, because we're dealing with public health, we're dealing with a social sector. So where does it happen? Happens everywhere, right? How many people? 21 million people, 27 million people, 14 million, it depends on the publication where you look. Uh, way too many people, right? Who is at risk? Well, you know, we think of uh, little brown girls in cages and brothels in India. Sure, there's migrants. There's people with disabilities. And so pointing out those areas where healthcare professionals might interact with people. Uh, and so there's refugees, internally displaced people, victims of humanitarian crises. You know who tend to be the first people to show up um, at a humanitarian crisis are, are, can be pedophiles. So you need to make sure that you have a strong child protection policy or some kind of protection policy for vetting uh, the volunteers that serve and are rushing down to help uh, also arm conflicts. Uh, these people are vulnerable. It's not just an issue of poverty, people. Not just an issue of poverty. And so there's involuntary domestic service. I uh, put debt bondage up there. Uh, let me try to define that for you. For example, there's a family in India. They get into debt because of medical debt. High medical care is ineffective, but it costs a lot. So they keep paying for medical care that doesn't work, and they keep paying, they get into debt. Finally, the debtor sells them to some factory making bricks, and that debt is passed down through the generations. And so you can have entire families trafficked together until they're able to resolve that issue. Um, Child soldiers is one, and so it's important to realize in armed conflicts that uh, over 300,000 children uh, serve in armed con in 30 different countries, also in, also victims of human trafficking. And just a point about boys, uh, you know, we know as healthcare professionals, and we're doing research, and you want to have evidence to back up your interventions. And you have to have good questions because you know that the answers you get depend on the questions that you ask. And so, unfortunately, a lot of our data have to do with girls in the flesh trade. And so we think sex trafficking is, is when we think of human trafficking. Um, but actually, I think that there's probably more around the world. There's probably more people being trafficked in labor exploitation than there are sex trafficking. But our data is really reflecting uh, women in the sex trade. But boys, uh, at Pat International in Child Prostitution and Trafficking uh, did a study and say we boys, maybe according to our data, take up maybe about 20% of the victims of trafficking, uh, the, of the sex trafficking in this country, but I, they estimate there's, it's far more than that. But we don't have the data to support that because we're not asking the right questions. And you're only getting, you only know what we're looking for. And so it's changing our questions and broadening our focus to include boys and men. And so boys cannot be bought. Bought, if you don't know, is the currency in Thailand. And so this is one of the organizations that I collaborate with. 
uh, has these stickers plastered all over Chiang Mai uh, because the, the trade in boys is huge in Thailand and in, including Chiang Mai. So boys cannot be bought is a play on words that they're not money and they can't, we cannot buy them. We should not. So uh, take home point, well, I've already given you several, but one of the things I really want you to take home is that human trafficking does not start when people find themselves enslaved. Okay, it, it, There's so many risk factors and vulnerabilities coming from where they grew up. Do they have citizenship issues like that? You know, are they, you know, were they caught in the midst of uh, an armed conflict? What about all those refugees in Syria or fleeing from Syria or the internally displaced peoples that are found within Burma or within Syria or a number of other countries? Internally displaced people basically are people, refugees within their own country. They're not in camps outside. They're just not able to live where their, where their home is, but they're still within their country of origin. So human trafficking does not start when people find themselves enslaved. And point number two is that human trafficking does not end when people are rescued from their trafficker or released from their exploitation. And so, so much we hear about, yes, rescue, you know, like on Facebook, encourage it. You know, I'm all for that. That's great. I mean, you're stopping the horror for that person who is in that situation. But let's think about how much better it would be if they weren't in that situation to begin with. And then you have to think about the long road of recovery after that. And so a successful rescue from trafficking is not when they're out released from their trafficker. A successful rescue really is when they're reintegrated into their original community or integrated into a new one. And so to think about that, I have all these, you know, there's a stages of human trafficking. There's pre-departure. You know, what, what, what is the situation? You know, are, did their parents really sell them for a TV set? You know, I... Not usually is it that they have no citizenship and therefore no opportunity for school, no opportunity for job. That's the number one risk factor for being trafficked in northern Thailand. It's not that they're poor. Because one of the, one of the variables that is actually preventive of human trafficking is a strong community, strong family. And so even if you're poor, but you have a community that's supportive and that is protective against uh, being trafficked. And then you have the transit and travel. You know, are you on a ship? Are you in the boot of a car? Are you, you know, are you, did you have to fly somewhere? Or are you just transported across the city? And then what happens to you in your destination? Uh, you know, your place of work, so to speak. And then detention, deportation, criminal investigation in a lot of areas we have to think about, okay, when you're rescued, when you're rescued in some countries, you're basically thrown into a detention jail, and you're, you might be, you might not be recognized as a victim of human trafficking. They might book you uh, as being an illegal, uh, an illegal migrant, and then deport you, and then you're sent, you know, from the firing pan back into the fire, so to speak, or the detention center, where even if you say, okay, this is a traffic person, but it feels like jail. There's just very little compassion, very little. I mean, not, not necessarily intentional, but, you know, countries being able to deal with, you know, the people that they find and how they deal with it. And the criminal investigation. And countries, uh, 
including our own, sometimes tying, it, tying services uh, related to their willingness to cooperate in prosecution cases. So our country has been known to do that. Okay, you get services, but we require you to participate. And that, that is not right either. And then there's the integration, reintegration. And so there's all these stages to incorporate. And so thinking about, okay, it's not just a girl in a brothel and then we rescue it, she's fine. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it. So what can I do as a health professional? Uh, there's a lot more we can do. I'm going to stress the prevention part of it. But here we have service. You know, you can care for survivals. Well, that's... That's obvious. You know, we can, we can provide direct health care. Uh, there's prevention. You know, that's addressing the risk factors. That's a lot more difficult. You know, how do you prevent child abuse, another public health problem, or domestic violence, or how you, how you keep people safer on the roads? So you think about other public health initiatives that really takes other uh, prevention, a mindset for public health. But identification. How can we identify... Uh, Victims in our clinical practice, it's all about, as a physician, what I try to do here and around the world is not, not try to add on extra things to your already busy practice or your already busy schedule in school or, or what have you, but how you can incorporate ideas of addressing human trafficking from prevention, outreach, or aftercare into what you already do. Uh, so research. So we need research. You know, like I said, healthcare is about uh, healthcare is about research, evidence based, basing our interventions on evidence. Very a dearth of evidence really supports most of the interventions being gone. You know, aftercare shelters want to employ this, or or methods of uh, counseling, or how we how we care for people in an aftercare shelter, or best ways to identify, or best ways to prevent. No one's funding that, you know. So get on your, if you're a donor, you know, if you're a church or whatever, how can you support research so that we know what we're doing is not harming people? Advocacy, you know, patient rights. Who, who pays for their care? You know, that's a really big issue. Training, what I do, what Jeff Barrows does, uh, what Gloria Halverson does. She's also giving a talk tomorrow. Um, and then hopefully we want to train other people. So training the trainer. So if you want to be trained up, come see one of us, and we'll get you connected into learning more about how you can uh, take this message and teach other people in your medical school or your nursing school or in your emergency uh, department, wherever. And then, of course, it is a team effort. And so what uh, Dr. Barrows is talking about right now is involving how you deal with the law enforcement, how you deal with the media, how you deal with social care, social work, you know, child protective services, those kinds of things. Um, so I'm going to briefly, this, I'm just, I'm, Gloria is giving a whole, Gloria Halverson is giving a whole talk on the physical uh, consequences, all these health risk categories, infectious disease, non-infectious disease. We're talking occupational hazards, such as agriculture and pesticides or working in a factory where you're breathing in fumes. Reproductive health, of course. Uh, mental health is probably the biggest comorbidity uh, of that people who have been trafficked suffer from. Of course, substance abuse complicates therapy, and it's a big issue whether that they've whether they anesthetize themselves, 
uh, with heroin or alcohol, or the trafficker has provided them with substances uh, in order to keep them con controlled. And then, of course, violence, uh, which I'll speak to in just a minute. But child health issues. Of course, children suffer the same, all of these uh, health issues, but then it's cumulative because children... I don't know if you've heard of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, the ACE study, um, and all the research that's be, that can link adult uh, diseases to trauma suffered in childhood and how much more are people who are chronically traumatized. In fact, they're working on a new definition of childhood PTSD and what does that look like, how to identify it, and how we treat it. Uh, and so if you're in pediatrics, you know what we always say is children are not little adults. And so it's helpful to understand unique issues surviving children, uh, involving children, which is, again, a whole other talk on this. But back to violence. Uh, and then understanding, as I said, how we understand human trafficking as a public health issue is that we have to understand that we regard domestic violence as a public health issue and child abuse as a public health issue. If you, I will read these subheadings for you. So starting from your left, the 60% is the number of, this was um, a study, they interviewed women in a post-trafficking aftercare center in Eastern Europe. And so 60% of the women who responded to this survey said that they were physically and or sexually abused. And so the next one, moving from left to right, is that 50% of the women were physically abused. 32% were sexually abused. 22% were both physically and sexually abused. And the last category, 15%, were sexually abused before the age of 15. So when we think about preventing human trafficking, we have to think about what's happening, you know, violence and the violence they suffer. You know, when we, you know, and people often comment to me like, wow, you know, there's a huge increase in sex trafficking in the United States. I said, well, you know, we're just thinking about it differently now. I mean, what the people that we used to imprison and criminalize as child prostitutes, we're now seeing them as victims of human trafficking. So it's not a new problem. Whether or not the numbers are increasing, it's hard to say. We're just doing a better job of counting. I don't know, honestly. And no one can really say for sure. Um, to be honest, I hope you have a lot of questions when you come away from here because it just really makes us question the way that we look at things or the way that we looked at child prostitutes and throw them in jail. No, now we're treating them as victims of trafficking. And so it's just and understanding the violence that leads them into, that makes them vulnerable into, into the situation. And as you can see, suffering physical and or sexual abuse is a huge part of that. And so addressing this is one of the keys to preventing human trafficking. And one of the keys to preventing trafficking in the States, but I can tell you, those kinds of things, that, was, that study was from Eastern Europe, and I can tell you from my experience, no hardcore studies to show, but from my experience, Domestic and child abuse is rampant in Asia. And so uh, Chris Byer, who's published a lot about human trafficking, especially in The Lancet, said that monitoring the health status of survivors of trafficking 
the care they receive, and their access to medical services will be crucial in the future to hold signatories of the Convention on the Rights of the Child accountable and protect this vulnerable group. So, public health, health care, our approach to human trafficking can help, can drive political will, can drive studies, can drive funding, can drive awareness, and we can collect data to hold those countries accountable, saying, we want numbers to show that you are or you're not doing what you need to be doing. And so one thing I want to help you, you know, this is from my experience in China. I spent six years in China. And so the next few slides demonstrate public health and how we're connecting the dots, if you will. Okay, so you have public health, health issues, violence. Well, let's just start back. Well, how can you connect sexually transmitted infections and baby trafficking? Because we know that sexually transmitted infections are also a public health issue. And so what does this look like in China? Now, this has not really been proven, but all of these following statements are true. So China has a lack of sex education. They just don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed, they're modest, and they say, Chinese, you know, we don't have these problems, we're just fine. Um, they know about it, they just, parents don't address it, they don't address it in schools. There's a, there's a big problem with that. But people still have sex, and they have unproductive sex. And they have, you know, a lot of sex, and we know this, this and, but they're embarrassed and China's a very collective society. They're silent about it. They don't discuss it. But the data shows that there's a high rate of untreated sexually transmitted infections. I mean, the data just on syphilis alone, one baby in the city of Shanghai born every hour for an entire year. The, the number is just in Shanghai. One baby is born with congenital syphilis every hour for an entire year in the city of Shanghai. That's how big syphilis is in China. So untreated sexually transmitted infections, high rate of infertility, throw in a high pressure to have a perfect child, right? Paternalistic society, it should be male, but if it's female, it's okay, but it should be perfect because you can only have one, okay? One-child policy. Um, there's different rules for the one-child policy. I'm not going to talk about that right now, but it's for most of the country, it's still in effect. So if you can only have one perfect child, but you're infertile, and there's no, there's no widespread legal adoption, uh, there's a market on baby trafficking, okay? Um, and so this, it's huge, and you'll find there's, there's markets, people paying. I mean, it's innocent. It's just like how they deal with, you know, organs for donation and things like that. Um, but people will have babies just to sell them. Um, and one earlier, just a couple months ago, they tracked, they busted a baby trafficking ring and through, they have an extensive DNA database um, that they started to track baby trafficking and they tracked the parents of these babies down. And the parents refused to take the babies back. And their conjecture was that they didn't want to be fined for having more than one baby. They didn't want that, I mean, basically, and I'm guessing, this wasn't in the article, but I'm guessing that it's possible that they were having more babies just to sell. 
because I know that ha- I know that's true. But whether it was true for that particular case, who knows? But it's just thinking. Okay, so when you're addressing all of healthcare, you know, how does one thing lead to another? You know, just connecting the dots. Uh, just give you something to think about. Okay, how can we connect dots on other specific issues in your specific country, in this country, in Uganda or uh, Scotland, wherever you are, or Moldova. So another another uh, story about public health or healthcare. Soka is a woman, Cambodia. So she has a child. Child is born with profound cerebral palsy. The father wants her to give the baby up for adoption or give it to an orphanage, abandon the children, child, basically. Well, Soka just, she adores the baby. You know, it's her child. She's a mom. So basically, her, her husband and her husband's family abandons her. And so she's left without many opportunities, doesn't know what to do, can't make enough. Okay, so she runs into these doctors who want to provide uh Healthcare, you know, injections, medicines to cure the baby's cerebral palsy because she doesn't know the doctors are taking advantage of her, or maybe the doctors don't know uh, that these kind of therapies aren't really indicated or helpful. But she is scrambling to make as much money as she can to pay for this expensive and yet ineffective healthcare, and so she winds up in prostitution. Well, it's very difficult to be a free agent, a woman on the street, picked up by pimps, uh, found in the flesh trade. I met her when she actually got out of the life into, in, into an aftercare program. And hearing her story, it's like, wow, the doctor is a pediatrician. You know, it's, it's, it's not just addressing trafficking. It's really building up the level of health care. It's really... You know, empowering the entire country and all of our doctors just to take better care of our people. You know, but there's an issue of what prevention is not. You know, I'll have another slide about what prevention is. Okay, this is what prevention is. It's tightening the net. What do I mean by that? It's reducing vulnerabilities for people who want to migrate, for example. Tightening the net means... um, Tracking, I have tracking people and money, making sure that uh, the net that traffickers can cast over all the vulnerable people. For instance, if, you, if you're a male in Laos or Cambodia or Burma or even in rural Thailand, you uh, might find a job in Thailand's very large fishing industry, which is notorious for trafficking. Um, has as many as 600 people uh, working in the 600,000 people working in the fishing industry. Uh, they estimate maybe 20 to 30 percent of those uh, are traffic people. And so, how can we help people if they're going to migrate? How can we do it more safely? I mean, there's better business bureaus. You know, how, how what's the transparency in, in in companies? You know, how can we? How can governments help track? Help, help make sure that companies are treating their, their employees correctly or well? Um, or how can potential employees vet their employers? Uh, so it's issues like that. Because what happens is when a guy is maybe, maybe they impound the fishing vessel, not for trafficking, but for fishing violations, 
then they, they go on board, they find, oh my gosh, this boat is full of slaves, and then they send them home. But what is there really for them to go back to? They're liable, they're liable to be trafficked again. Um, if there are not more systems in place to help people work safely. And so increasing awareness that leads to action. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there's awareness campaigns. You can go to a concert by Jason Mraz, or you can run a 5K or do something. But, you know, so you're learning about human trafficking. But, you know, I'm interested in developing more awareness campaigns that actually educate you about what is going on in Louisville. Okay, a 5K for, against trafficking in Louisville. Well, is that going to impact the local community? Is that going to impact a, you know, an, a, a, is that going to help address the prevention, such as homeless shelters or a free clinic or an aftercare shelter? Or is it going to raise money so that people can get counseling? Or is it going to raise money so that we can, you know, we can involve, can we have a, or is it going to raise awareness that there's a coalition, a network of people working together? You know, how is it going to impact locally rather than just saying, oh, it's about human trafficking. And then, yeah, we're against human trafficking. You know, tell me more about that. You know, really action. And really that's, that's meaningful. You know, it can be small. But is the impact really sustainable? And is it local? And is it tangible? And decreasing demand. Very, very difficult. You know, demand. You know, when you talk about demand, uh, when you have the sex industry in Thailand is 14% of the GDP. When you have 90% of Thai men visiting a prostitute by the time they're 20. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, the, the flesh trade in Bangkok, which is a huge tourist destination, or Pattaya, or Phuket, or those other places, it's not fueled necessarily by white men going looking for brown girls. It's, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. And so how do you address that? It's huge. Um, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but it's something for us to think about. You know, that there is a humongous demand or demand for cheap labor. You know, when workers in China start rising up and they're demanding rights and they're, they're demanding that their employers take better care of them. You know, well, what's to prevent these employers from going to Bangladesh or Malaysia or Vietnam where workers will, will put up with a lot more? And so that's happening. It's thinking about globalization. So what prevention is not... Okay, you know, as I said before, you know, identification of victims is, it's, it is prevention. You're preventing, you're stopping that cycle for that person. So it's more of a second or third degree uh, prevention, but you're not preventing them in the primary sense of being trafficked in the first place. Prosecution, better laws, it's documented that we have better laws to prosecute uh, perpetrators of of uh, child abuse, and we have better laws to protect victims of child abuse, but it has not shown to decrease the incidence of child abuse in this country. And so it's something to think about. It's not a bad thing. What we need to think about, yeah, laws are good, it's not going to prevent it, unless you're looking more at the demand side. For example, in Sweden, I don't know if you've heard this, but Sweden has made it illegal to buy sex but not necessarily illegal to sell it because it recognizes the unequal uh, status of the business transaction. Okay, And so that has greatly decreased the, 
the level of trafficking, the decrease the number of violence. And so there's still women on the streets being prostituted. But it's making it very, very difficult to do that. There's not as much business. Okay, Swedish men are probably traveling elsewhere. But it's less available in Sweden. Norway, I think, is also looking at that. And I think other European countries are moving towards a Swedish model because they've shown it really works. But if you have a collective um, you know, movement towards this kind of thing, then it decreases the opportunities for people to travel to take advantage. Um, so that, that's where laws address demand. Okay? But laws just for prosecution, not so much. Safe harbor laws. Safe harbor laws are those laws that provide protection. Remember when I said it, we used to see these girls as child prostitutes? And the safe harbor law will say, okay, we're not going to throw them in, in jail. We're not going to criminalize them, but we're going to send them instead to a center uh, that addresses traumatized uh, teens. So those laws... Very, very good. Very necessary. Every state needs to address this problem, but you're not preventing. Okay? Building more shelters, again. A good idea, but you're not preventing human trafficking. Um, in fact, uh, you know, there's a lot of children's homes in Thailand. There's over 600 just in the province where I live. And we know that this is not necessarily related to trafficking per se, but we know that Families are willing to give up children to live in children's homes instead of in their family because they believe that they'll be better cared for. But let me tell you, half of the boys that I see on the street have run away from a children's home because they've been sexually or physically abused. And so think about (laughs) orphanages, children's homes, or aftercare shelters where... There's talk, well, you know, if we start offering, or you have laws such as in Italy. I was in Moldova in September, and a lot of Moldovan women are trying to see if they can get trafficked to Italy because then they'll say, oh, I'll get trafficked to Italy, and I'll be there three months. I'm not kidding you, true story. I'll be there for three months, and I'll run away because if then if I run away and I declare myself as being trafficked in Italy, then I can stay there and get a green card, and I can work and have a better life. Okay? Think about I mean, it's just not... I'm not saying it's bad that Italy has these generous laws to compensate victims of trafficking on their soil. It's just thinking through... You know, it's just these unintended consequences where people are really risking their life because they're so desperate, because life is so bad in Moldova. And it's pretty bad. So, I, I told you, there's a lot more questions. I don't want to answer the cities, but it's important for us to recognize that human trafficking is, you know, when you, have to, when you consider the global nature of it, it's huge. So, public health approach involves, you know, rather than a prosecution-based approach, you know, we have, it involves evidence-based research. It involves prevention. It addresses root causes addresses societal views and behaviors, and engages all the stakeholders as essential partners. I mean, we're talking the social work, we're talking media, talking law enforcement, health care, all those things. That, you know, that these, the, the stories I've been telling you just are, are evidence that 
you know, this is the way to approach. And so when you think about public health approach, it just is the individual risk factors and the relationships of that individual. What kind of family are they in? Uh, what about their schools, which is community? What's their, what's their attitude, the societal attitude towards women um, or the societal attitude of the caste system, for example, in India? All those kinds of things that, you know, start from the core and move out. And so having an approach that addresses one or all of these levels, but understanding that they're all interconnected. And so when I said, wow, okay. Um, what, I forgot, when am I officially done? I think I have 50 minutes total. So am I supposed to be done at 5? 4.50. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So anyway, lots of stories. Anyway, you, you're, you're getting the picture, right? So the root causes are social. They're geographical, political, economic, and, and legal. Uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, the laws, all these things. So when you, these are actually, there's six different areas here. But I, this picture is an infrastructure of Southeast Asia. When you think of globalization, it's going to look like one giant, it's going to look like one country in two to five years, rather than six separate regions. This is, this is the greater Mekong sub-region. And with the, the, uh, the infrastructure, the gas lines, the roads, the trains, everything is the electrical. It's going to really look like one country, but still function as six separate regions. So something to think about. I talked to you about Moldova already. So I have covered a lot of this. And then research. And so we need research. Here we go. No data, no problem. Uh, you know, you don't have, I, I can't get published. I have papers. Oh, well, you have no data to support your, your thesis that this is a problem. Well, yeah, because I want to say that this is a problem, but there's no data. We need to generate more studies to generate data, but you can't generate funding for studies if you can't demonstrate there's a problem which, for which you need data. Yeah, this is a public health conundrum. Uh, and so it's, it's hard. Uh, so we really need to be proactive about studying. But it doesn't take a big research project. We just have to, I, when I'm working with an individual shelter, are you, are you tracking your beneficiaries? You know, are you at least following up with them? And then asking hard questions about, is what we're doing really helpful? Or is there things that really are hurtful? Or things we could just do better? So in public health, numbers are important to know. But it's hard to find. You know, how do you find victims? You know, how do you study the perpetrators? Different countries have different definitions of what makes a child. Is it 14 years old? 16 years old? 21 years old? 18? You know, the UN says 18, but not every country ascribes to that. Same with trafficking. So... Um, yeah, the slides will be uploaded, but I talked about effective campaigns, you know, prevention and public health. Oh, raising awareness. This is a billboard in, in Israel, you know, really expresses the commoditization of women. And so I want to end on this. The healthcare community must become more engaged in increasing the recognition of trafficked women and girls, and I would say men and boys, in healthcare settings in provision of appropriate services, helping shape public policy to address what is one of the most disturbing health issues of our time. And so the business of public health is to, make, is to take what is accepted and make it unacceptable. 
And that's um, one of the former directors of the CDC. Um, so that's where I live. And there's my contact information. And so I just rushed through this. I want to get to your questions, and I'll be available after. So please, questions? I have about five or ten minutes. Yes? You overwhelmed? Is your head? Yes. Yeah, that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, sorry. H- making your head spin. It's not your fault. It's just the topic and the prevalence. Okay. Um, if you work with um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and so my desire is to find out better ways to, uh, to help Okay. Well, I'll try. You didn't. I'll just uh, say something. I don't know if you formed a good question, but when you're dealing with children's homes, orphanages, is you probably know hardly any children in orphanages are actually orphaned. Um, <laughs> they're mostly abandoned, and so you want to look at uh, well, what is their recruitment? You know, how are they? Where are the children coming from, and what is their policy for accepting children? And can we? What can we do to strengthen families and communities to keep children at home or in their community or kinship care or whatever? I mean, we're not really going to get away from orphanage or orphanage or children's homes altogether, but we can do more to promote children and families and less and fewer children in institutions. Uh, and so what? Are, and also making sure that those places have child protection policies. You know, to ensure, you know, their staff recruitment and do they have protection, like, when, when people visit, you know, do you know who they are? Are they accompanied, you know? Are the children being allowed to spend time alone with adults or any? And I don't care if they give a million bucks. They need to, they need to sign that form and they need to uh, go through all of those uh, protective features and everyone treated the same. Even if you give a million bucks or if it's a guy off the street or an intern or, you know, look up volunteerism or Google orphan tourism or volunteerism and then you'll see. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, and how do I not get overwhelmed? I just keep focus and <laughs> sometimes it's helpful to just to have a reminder of having an individual in front of me um, thinking about big picture, but then being able to, okay, I like doing these clinics where I have just some one-on-one time with people who've been affected. Okay, question in the back. Yes. Oh, yeah, I said we're not going to get away with it, but there's a lot that we can. Yeah, go ahead. You mean about a child protection policy? Well, yeah, the laws are weak, but you, but an individual uh, organization or uh, an or a children's home, they can establish a higher level of standard than is required by the government, 
And so you can start, well, you can email me and I can get you started. You can also go to chabdai, C-H-A-B-D-A-I.org, and they have examples of child protection policy. The ECPAT USA or ECPAT, E-C-P-A-T, International, uh, also will help people, um, organizations, establish child protection policies. Um, and so it's thinking clearly, thinking through that. And so even if the laws are, are not, you know, up to that level, you can, you're still able to have a higher level, higher level of standards for your particular, um, you know, shelter organization. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about how, uh, well, human trafficking is really entrenched in a lot of cultures and it's a long-term problem. But also you said how people in situations of emergencies, whether it's conflict or natural disasters, they're at risk also. Is there much crossover in how those two things are addressed? Because it would seem like there's one thing that's going to be a good solution there, even remotely applicable to another one. Are they of equal weight? Oh, like the different weight? Like, like, what, uh, like is human trafficking people in emergency situations, does that compare at all to the kind of people who are trafficked in non-emergency situations? Oh, I, I understand. Well, there is. I mean, they may end up in the same kind of situation. It's just the, the vulnerabilities are different, and the means in which they find themselves enslaved may be different. Um, but as far as, you know, prevention for humanitarian crises, I, I know from a, I've attended courses on addressing on hu- families and children in humanitarian crises, and they implement uh, child protection policies and making sure that their beneficiaries are ke- being kept safe. And so the vulnerabilities and reasons why they find themselves in a slave-like situation is different. Um, the prevention, the addressing the prevention is different, but they may end up, they still all may end up in some child brothel or some factory or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's different on one end, but the same on the other. Um, so, yeah. Right. Oh, sure. Well, I think, uh, are you are you a counselor or? In I am a grad student right now. Okay. So the let me rephrase a question for the recording is for the benefit of clarity is that you're wondering whether to focus energy on, you know, studying uh, some studies that address what's effective in mental health care of traffic survivors, or to spend energy in addressing the mental health care, or the care of people who have been abused, domestic violence or child abuse or things like that. Does that say it right? Um, or kind of. Can you clarify it? Just because we can, like I can put energy into gathering data about trafficking specifically or 
because we already know there are all of those connections from other areas, and there already is money available, so we could start developing programming that addresses the issue, but it's never like
Um, it's Indiana Protect Protection Traffic. I don't know. IPAD. I don't know. Anyway, um, I forget. There's a there's a basically the anti-trafficking coalition network that's throughout Indiana, and there the person who's leading it is a nurse and really is starting to take healthcare to the forefront of counter-trafficking interventions in the state of Indiana. And so I just met her a couple weeks ago. She's fantastic. Her name is Jane Callahan. Anyway, uh, if you look it up, counter-trafficking, IPATH, Indiana, Google that. If you can't find it, email me and I'll get you connected. And she'll know more about what's active, what needs to be done, stuff like that. Yeah, and just a word, you know, Super Bowl, okay, everyone talks about trafficking the Super Bowl. Seriously, we just need to, like, there's trafficking going on right now in New Jersey. And, <laughs> you know, we don't have to wait for the, the traffickers don't wait for the Super Bowls to come around. Okay, there might be a more, you know, it, it's not it's not not some sort of event-oriented issue. Um, it's a good opportunity to make people aware but it's not like it goes away when the Super Bowl goes to another city. So any other questions or comments? Or I guess we'll end the session so you can get dinner, and I'll be available. Thank you.